This podcast contains sensitive content, which some may find disturbing. Information shared here should not be construed as medical advice. If you or someone you love needs help with trauma, chronic pain, or anything else we discuss here, please seek out a medical professional. All resources shared are for entertainment purposes only. All content represents the opinions of Kim and Anna and any special guests and do not necessarily reflect the positions of any organizations they work for. This is not ideal, but we're going with it. A mother-daughter podcast about chronic pain, trauma, mental illness, and more. Kim is a trauma therapist and certified addiction counselor who lives in Pennsylvania, USA. And her daughter, Anna, is a scoliosis sufferer and trauma survivor living in the tropical north of Australia. Join us each week as they discuss topics from their life experiences. Welcome to the show. Hello and welcome. This is Not Ideal, but we're going with it, the podcast. I'm Kim and I'm the mom. And I'm Anna. I'm the daughter. And today we have another special guest star. Woohoo! <laughs> and today our special guest star is Dr. Mark Talbot, author, professor at Wheaton College. Welcome, Dr. Talbot. We are so excited to have you here with us. It's good to be here with the both of you. Mark is the author of the book, When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture by Crossway Books. It's the first of a four-part series. Is that right, Mark? Right. On suffering. And he's also an associate professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. And fun fact, he preached the homily at my wedding, Anna, back in 1990. (laughs) When dad and Your I first worked, husband. In, <laughs> yes. When dad and I worked in student development, I'm still married to that man. And Mark was a professor at Calvin College, so we I, are just honored to have you with us, Mark. Friend, professor, author. Yes. I have what? a quick question because I'm wondering what a homily is because I don't think I had one at my wedding, and I think that I just am out of the loop a little bit. So could you quickly clarify? If, if you didn't, if you didn't, Anna, then you're not married. That's right. <laughs> a homily is just the sermon and and homily is used especially for what is usually a fairly short sermon and quite often in weddings. My own father gave my homily at my wedding and he talked about potty training stories. So that was a great... That was great. He did not run it by me. Let me just clarify. He did not run it by me. The first time I heard it was when I was standing there in my wedding dress in front of all of our family friends. So that was a great surprise. So Mark, we're excited about your book. Anna and I have both read it and we're excited for the future ones coming out and have a bunch of questions about the book. When's the next one due to come out? The next one's going to come out in July of next year. It's called Give Me Understanding That I May Live, Situating Our Suffering with in God's redemptive plan. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So July of 2022. Excellent. Mm-hmm. The backstory for those books, kind of your foundation, your almost your credentials to even be writing on suffering has to do with a personal testimony that you experienced starting when you were a teenager. Is that right? Would you be able that's to right. tell us about that story? And that's a good way to put it, Anna, that it's kind of personal credentials. When I was 17, I fell about 50 feet off a Tarzan-like rope swing mm-hmm. and uh, broke my back. There were actually 
two of us that were on a seat on it. A third guy tried to jump on and get on the seat, missed. We got out over the far end of the arc. I realized that he and I were going to fall. I thought if I fall on him, I'll kill him. So I shoved him off one way. I ended up being peeled off the little round seat and my uh, shoulders hit first and my my feet went over my head and I broke my back at T10 and 11, fairly far down one's back. It it, It was really a rather remarkable experience and here's the reason. I had become a Christian when I was 12, and yet I was a really wild kid, just did things that were dangerous a lot of the time. I was quite smart, but was not at all disciplined. I was looking forward to going to college, but I was quite sure that I wouldn't make it through even a year because I wouldn't be disciplined enough. Mm -hmm. I had found myself just wondering what's going to happen in my life, and I knew it was Mm -hmm. out of control. Mm -hmm. And I had actually prayed to God that he would do whatever was necessary to keep me close to him. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's one of those prayers that we often... kind of regret, (laughs) kind of like praying for patience. I don't want to say that what happened to me was God answering that prayer. But the interesting Mm. thing was right after I hit the ground, I looked and I saw that my legs were in this little creek at the bottom of this gully and that I wasn't feeling anything. And Mm -hmm. I knew immediately, I had met Brian Sternberg, who held the world record for the pole vault in 1963. He Mm. pioneered fiberglass poles. He had been practicing his landings on a trampoline, had lost his balance. I think it was in 64, had fallen on his neck and had become a quadriplegic. Mm -hmm. And I had met him after he had become a quadriplegic. And I remember thinking as soon as I hit the ground and realized that I wasn't feeling my legs that I had done the same thing as Sternberg had done just a little further down, which in Mm. fact was true. So I spent six months in the hospital. Back then, they let you stay in the hospital longer than they do now, trying to learn to walk again. And by the time I left, initially, I had no movement in my legs and no feeling. By the time I left, I could get by with one or two canes with a very, very awkward walk. Kim will remember the walk from mm-hmm. when I was walking. And it was a it was a difficult thing to see for other people to see. But the interesting thing was that out of that experience, I had this sense that God loved me. And I had it from the first moment that I recognized what had happened to me. Mm-hmm. And that started me on this earnest journey to be in communion with God. During the six months I was in the hospital, I didn't spend much time reading scripture or anything else. But by the time I left, I just had this sense of God's presence, especially when I would take a spill and have to get back up off the ground and try to do it in a way where the people around me wouldn't feel uncomfortable with my doing so. Mm -hmm. Wow. Were you right away feeling called to become a professor or how did you get your vision? Yeah. Or your clarity. Yeah. When I went to college, it was a year and three months after my accident. I was extremely fortunate that I went to Seattle Pacific. And uh, Seattle Pacific had a brand new president, David McKenna. And he took an interest in me from my first day at Seattle Pacific. And because of the way I walked, students just flocked to me when they had trouble because they they just felt that I would understand. Mm. And uh, so McKenna, my freshman year and then my sophomore year, a guy named Frank Klein came as dean of religion. And my junior year, Cliff McCrath came as dean of students. They uh, spent literally hundreds of hours with me teaching me how 
how to help people, how to think about myself. And so Mm -hmm. I actually had thought initially that I would just be going into the ministry. But Mm -hmm. in fact, it was toward the end of my college years with these guys really interacting with me daily that they said, you know, we really think that maybe your path isn't just the pastorate, that it is, in fact, getting a doctorate in philosophy and teaching philosophy. So so they were the ones who really started me on that track, which, by the way, I think is very often the way that any of us find our way in life. It's that others feel for us such care. What it's called in scripture is kesed, which is steadfast love. They feel Mm -hmm. steadfast love for us, which leads them then to care for us in astounding ways, ways that go far beyond what they are obliged to do, but that help to shape us as persons and set us on our life uh, pathways. Mm. Wow. I have a follow-up question to what you're talking about there. Mm -hmm. I have found, and even I know in your book, you do mention this even just in the very beginning, you use the same quote that C.S. Lewis uses in his theodicy, The Problem of Pain. Mm -hmm. I am not one who jests at scars having never felt a wound. (laughs) Very good, Anna, that you understood that that came from Lewis, because uh, if I recall, that's in the preface of that book, and I didn't say it was theirs. So you uh, read pretty well. <laughs> yes, well, wow. I, well, I think it was also the fact that I was reading the two books at around the same time. <laughs> okay, uh, okay. And that actually is where my question is coming from, because recently I've been in a place in my life where I've been looking for not necessarily leadership alone, but kind of guidance mixed with empathy mm-hmm. and just general camaraderie, I suppose, yeah. going forward in a life that, you know, is is frequently encountering either a type of suffering or maybe yeah. hopelessness. You know, it's helpful to have comrades who understand. Right. And so that's where I've been at. And I was wondering, was there anyone who came to you to kind of teach you how to help yourself? Or was that exclusive kind of to, to your relationship with Christ that you were learning how to do that? Yeah, I think a lot of the first six months involved really wonderful hospital workers. When I went mm-hmm. to Good Samaritan Hospital in Puyallup, Washington, I got this wonderful physical therapist. And uh, she just committed herself deeply to me for the next four mm-hmm. and a half months that I was in the hospital. I had a lot of what's called clonus, which meant that my legs would jump. They had me in long leg braces. And uh, she was trying to help me learn how to navigate steps with forearm crutches. She was quite strong. She would get me at the top of a flight of steps, would wrap her arms around my waist, because I'm 6'4", and would lift me off the ground until my Mm. feet quit jumping and then set me back down. And I think that when you see that sort of care, Mm -hmm. that does tremendous things to give a person hope. Mm -hmm. So I think that was where it started, Anna. And then more or less what happened was at six months when I got home, I had two courses I needed to take in high school. And so I took them in the middle of the day. And and there were a few people that I talked to then, but largely that was the time when I discovered Scripture. There was a Bible that Oxford University Press used to put out called the Pilgrim's Bible, and it had notes from the Geneva Bible of the 1500s in it 
updated just a little. This is the old King James Version. And Mm. I found that the notes, there were 7,000 notes in that Bible, helped me to understand what God was saying to me in Scripture. And I just devoured Scripture for over Mm. six months. Mm -hmm. Mm. That's awesome. And Mark, you you talk about, and is it pronounced Kesed, like with a K or? Yeah, it appears as an H-E-S-E-D, but with a dot under the H, which in Hebrew signals that you pronounce it as the C-H and Bach. Now, most Hebrew words, you don't need this, but it's worth knowing, most Hebrew (laughs) words are pronounced uh, with the emphasis on the final syllable. But in fact, the word kesed is one of the special words where you pronounce it with the accent on the first syllable. So it is kesed. That's so interesting. (laughs) It it means, and it means loving kindness? It means steadfast love. Steadfast love. It, okay. It's the it's the chief characteristic of God. When Moses oh, wow. said to God, reveal to me who you are in, in Exodus 34, the only term that comes up twice is that he is a God of steadfast love. Wow. And you know, when you were talking about these men who showed that to you, and then for as long as I've known you, you have really poured into everyone you've known, including me and my husband and students. And the book gets into your more recent trauma with pouring into students and helping them, and which was also part of the impetus for this for this, yeah. at least the first book. Could you talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, I lost a student in 2007 to suicide. Mm-hmm. He had been uh, my student in a freshman class three years earlier. He graduated after three years, and I hadn't seen him after the first year much at all. I bumped into him, what turned out to be his last semester of his senior year, and he said he would love to have lunch. And we went to lunch together, and he told me that he had been just deeply depressed for years. Mm. He had prayed that God would take away the depression and God hadn't. He just wasn't sure how to think about God at that point. He that summer went overseas to become adept in German and ended up taking his life by stepping in front of a train. Mm. And I had been talking to his parents before that happened Mm -hmm. because I thought that they needed to have someone talking to them that could understand what their son was going through. And at that point, realized that my, uh, that, that a central I don't know if I want to say obligation, but in a sense, it struck me as as one of the most important tasks that I had was to help mm-hmm. these parents who sure. were deeply Christian through the grief that they were suffering. And so this first book actually starts by recounting just a little bit of my student's story and bringing up the kinds of questions that his parents had, which included things like, well... We know that uh, God is all-powerful and all-loving, and so he could have taken away the depression that our son had. We also know that he knows everything, so he knew that this was going to lead to his taking his life. Why didn't God stop that? Those Mm. are the kinds of questions that Christians have to struggle with, and uh, this series of books is actually meant to cover, by the time it's done, fully enough that people have complete answers to them. Well, Mm. Not complete answers, that that they have the biblical answer, which still God has to help us to be able to reckon with and accept. That is so wow. 
so important and so key, I think, to the Christian faith is that a biblical answer is it's more often not a complete answer. You know, yeah. a lot of times we're still left wondering, which is the whole point, I think, at least of faith. Yes. No, I think that's right, because then we're supposed to trust God. It does seem to me that when we enter the eschaton, in other words, after our Lord returns, that uh, many of our questions will just drop away mm. um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we'll realize that the questions didn't have to get answers. The important thing was to trust God and uh, to endure in this life and uh, recognize that he's not going to give us complete answers because, in fact, it's, I think, when we think that he's going to give us complete answers that we get in trouble and we get other people right. in trouble by trying to give them little pat answers. Right. I loved that in your book about talking about Job's friends doing a really good job at first <laughs> by just sitting there and not not having answers. But then in, in really trying to comfort themselves, they tried to place an answer on Job's suffering. And I yes. loved that point yes. that it was their fear that they were going to suffer like he did right. that caused them to do that. Yes. And, and I think that very often is what happens is that we are afraid that if we can't assign some cause to someone's suffering, that is uh, something that doesn't concern us, that if we can't do that, then God may do the same to us. Mm -hmm. I have also experienced that of people assigning worth, even when I don't ask for it, (laughs) they still assign worth. (laughs) You know, as soon as they find out that I'm suffering, it's like the go-to response because they feel like that's their duty. You know, that's the way that they could help really quickly. You know, they're in my first five, 10 minutes of knowing them. And I know yeah. that their intentions yeah. are good, but that it honestly, it feels like it cheapens my suffering. It's like, listen, if that's yeah. the reason I've got yeah. major problems, if that is why I've been dealing with this for my entire life, I've got way yeah. bigger problems. No, mm-hmm. no, that's that's exactly right, Anna. I recently had reason to say to somebody who's extremely productive that uh, I would like to see him be less productive and more puzzled. Mm-hmm. Because in fact, the way that we help others to get through these difficult situations where God doesn't give us complete answers is by their understanding that we understand that uh, God does not give us complete answers. Right. And that was that point that you made, particularly talking about Jeremiah's suffering, that what do we do with God saying not everyone knows why certain things come into our lives. I've not read that in other books on suffering. Yeah, in fact, that may be a place where talking about the structure of the book uh, will be enlightening to people, I think, Kim. The way that I wrote it, the second chapter deals with Naomi's suffering, Job's suffering, and Jeremiah's suffering, and stops at the place where they are most despairing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so in chapter two, I stop. At that place, because what I want people to realize is that Scripture has cases of suffering that are as deep as any suffering anyone could ever experience, and I don't want to get to the answer too soon. And then Mm -hmm. I take a chapter, the third chapter, which is called Breathing Lessons, trying to explain how the Psalms of Lament and the psalmists who speak them would take their suffering to God, pour out their hearts. But in every case except for one, Psalm 88, they at some point in the psalm either praise God directly for the fact that he will deliver them, and this doesn't mean that he's necessarily delivering them from the earthly suffering, but that he's delivering 
delivering them spiritually, either that he has or that he will, or they vow that they will, in fact, praise God when he does. And so there are mm-hmm. kind of three steps to how one prays those Psalms. First of all, you breathe in God's promises and scripture and mm-hmm. the things that he's done for people. Then you breathe out, you moan out your own laments. And then you mm-hmm. breathe back in as a third step, God's promises. And, and that's the pattern or the rhythm of breathing. So finally, in the fourth chapter, I pick back up on the stories of Naomi and Job and Jeremiah. And Kim, you've read the book well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, the first two stories end with Naomi and Job being restored to lives of real pleasantness, of real goodness. Never happens with Jeremiah. Jeremiah mm. in the Hebrew is the longest book in the Bible. Near the end of it, we aren't even told of his death. It fritters out. The shape of Jeremiah after 20 chapters, which are more or less chronological, uh, the remainder of the book, in fact, isn't chronological. And in fact, it follows the form of the kinds of survival stories that people who have suffered serious trauma write. Mm-hmm. So, so the book itself corroborates what Jeremiah went through. And yet, as I say in the epilogue, he, as uh, all of the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints that we have recorded, what he did was he endured. And that mm-hmm. was always asked of him. It wasn't asked mm-hmm. that he'd be happy. It wasn't asked that he'd say, okay, everything's fine. It was asked that he would endure. Mm. Wow. And I, I wanted to ask you about the breathwork chapter because in trauma work, because you know I do, I'm a trauma therapist, and recovering of just your physical breath is an important part right. for for the nervous system. And so I, I really loved how you incorporated that with the breathing in of God's promises and something you can stand on, but then also groaning out the complaint, not editing yourself to recognize that you're invited to say everything that you need to say in this relationship, but then to also breathe back in the promises. In your chapter, you didn't talk about actual breathing, but I didn't know if maybe those two were tied together for you. Yeah, I think that I, I think that they are, Kim. Um, and and you're right that part of what it means to breathe out is that you don't edit yourself. We mm-hmm. tend to think that God can't handle the truth, right? And as a result, we don't want to bear to Him what is going wrong in our souls. Uh, Mm -hmm. But God already knows all of that, and it is Mm -hmm. for our good to do that. And I think that this actually can be set up as actual breathing, that perhaps what you do is you read some passages of, well, here's my example in the book, really. It's Psalm 22, which Mm -hmm. all of us know, our Lord took the first verse of it on his lips on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I go through Mm -hmm. the psalm, and you see the breathing of the psalmist. As Derek Kidner says in his commentary on the psalm, it's really hard to understand what the experience could have been of David that led to that psalm, because the experience is an experience of death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and David didn't die and then come back and write right. the psalm, but wow. our Lord did. And so the picture that you get as you read through that psalm is of moaning, groaning out these horrible things, and then breathing in the assurances of what God has done for one in the past, moaning things out, breathing in what he's going to do for us in the future. I am sure that as our Lord took the first words of Psalm 22 upon his lips, that he was thinking of the final words 
which were words of the fact that God would lead him to glory, to triumph. Mm-hmm. And and so the psalm is an excellent example of the way that I think you really can with that psalm, Kim, you could breathe that by breathing mm-hmm. out the laments and then breathing in the assurances of what God has done in the past and what he's going to do in the future. Right, right. I love that. I actually had, th- this is switching switching directions very slightly, but well, actually maybe more than <laughs> very slightly. <laughs> but I just, listening to you talk about these different insights with kind of long-term suffering, because I think that the process for dealing with grief is that to deal with long-term grief and to deal with short-term grief and suffering, they're, they're a bit of a different process, you know, if, if, mm-hmm. you, if there's an end to it and you can just... Yeah, you know, recover from that point on. It's a different yeah. process. And I was wondering if in your experience as a Christian who has really been plagued with chronic suffering throughout your life, if you've ever encountered that theory, or at least that belief of you should be healed by now. And if you're not, if you haven't been healed by now, that belief that something is wrong with you, or or even that we should all be striving for miraculous healing, which I have yeah. taken issue with for yeah. a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really good question. Interestingly enough, exactly the same issue came up with the Apostle Paul, and it's the reason why he penned 2 Corinthians. There were evidently certain super apostles, so to speak, in Corinth, whose very charge against Paul was that he could not possibly be favored by God because of how much he had suffered and was suffering. And so the idea was, if God, if you really were God's apostle, he'd take this away from you. Yeah. And the book is written. Now, we we realize that the second Corinthian, both Corinthian letters um, um, may in fact involve stitching together more than one letter that Paul wrote. But the stuff that we get in second Corinthians is his answer to that. And interestingly enough, that's the only book where Paul is provoked by his opponents to giving a pretty full listing of all of the suffering that he had gone through. Hmm. And it's given in the 11th and 12th chapters. And more or less what it comes to is the fact that uh, other than our Lord's un believable suffering, inconceivable suffering of being separated from the love of his father. Mm. There is no one in all of scripture who suffered more than the Apostle Paul. Mm. And that itself should be an answer to people who say, come on, if you had enough faith, you'd be healed. Mm. One thing to think through, and this would require going through all of one's scriptures and seeing how often people are miraculously healed or delivered compared to their having the ordinary ups and downs, health and sickness of life. The ratio is such that the number of miraculous events are infinitesimally small. Mm. God does not generally heal us. That does not mean, it does not mean that we aren't to pray when we're sick and ask him to show us his care. We are. And I, many times in my life, I'm sure that he has answered those prayers. But overall, we learn the most when we go through suffering of the sort that's talked about in Romans 5, 3 through 5, where you remember that Paul's remark 
was that the people he was writing to should rejoice in their sufferings. And his reason was that they would know that suffering produces endurance Mm -hmm. and that endurance produces character Mm -hmm. and that character produces hope. And hope is the one thing that doesn't put us to shame because Christian hope is a sense of God's love being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So generally, the way that God works is not by miraculously taking pain and suffering away from us. He may do that and does do it occasionally, but it is certainly not the normal expectation in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Read through the Psalms and see how often David is lamenting and calling on God to somehow rescue him from some situation. Mm-hmm. Derek Kidner makes the remark, that it's obvious that the times when David is closest to God is when he most clearly feels God's enemies pressing him. Mm. I loved what you said a little bit ago about, about Jeremiah and how even in the way it's written, it sounds like a trauma narrative, which in trauma therapy, we can tell traumatized individuals by the way they tell their story. And so we rework the story back and expose you slowly until you can get comfortable. So the story doesn't push you around and, and reintroduce feeling and things like that. So I found that just fascinating that there was a trauma narrative in scripture. So I just wanted to highlight that. I loved what you said about that in the book. And then also... Could you tell us just about the title, When the Stars Disappear? What a cool title. It comes out of the 27th and 28th chapters of Acts, where Paul is uh, heading on a voyage to Rome to appear before Caesar. And in the midst of the voyage, they encounter a storm, which is so awful that the sun and the moon and all the stars disappear for two weeks. Mm. They didn't eat. They um, had to cut their masts, throw all of their food overboard, and so on and so forth. It looked as if it was a completely hopeless situation. In the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, there's uh, a shoal that is called the Sirtis, which is quite shallow. And they, uh, because they couldn't take their bearings, since ancient navigators took them by means of the sun and the moon and the stars, Since uh, they had disappeared, they couldn't take their bearings and they were afraid that they were going to be driven against it, that the boat would break up and they would all drown. Mm -hmm. God came to Paul in the middle of the night in a dream and told him that provided everyone stayed on board, that indeed he would deliver him to Rome and everyone would be safe. Mm -hmm. And so it's this wonderful story of the way in which even though for all human calculations, everything was lost. God hadn't lost his perspective. He hadn't lost Mm -hmm. his orientation. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we deal with things like trauma stories, uh, they are just one feature of the fact that our lives have to be lived as stories. There's no other way in which a life can be meaningful, no other way in which you can lead a life other than by being able to tell a story about your life. I deal a fair amount with that, Uh, in the epilogue of my first book and a lot more in the second book because the second book is on the story of scripture, which is the story of creation, rebellion, redemption, and finally consummation. We need two different stories in order to live a meaningful life. We need a personal story and we need a story, a general story, a universal story. One of the interesting things is that modern science can't give us 
a complete story. It can give us only a story fragment because there is no proper ending to the story of science. It's just that everything's going to fritter out and uh, nothing will have meant anything uh, in the end. Mm -hmm. It's only a story like Christianity that can give us enough hope that we can be courageous in the face of awful things and therefore redeem those things in such a way that our lives are clearly worth living. Wow. Amen. <laughs> yeah, I love I love that the title and your description there because that so encapsulates what suffering is like that your bearings are gone. Yep. You you don't know where you are. You know, and it bring it brings back for me um, that passage in Job where he says, you know, I go forward, but he's not there. I go backward. Yes. I look left. I look right. But yep. then he, he comes to that point where he says, but but he knows yeah. the path that I take. Right. Like I'm my bearings are gone. The stars have disappeared. Yep. But but God knows where I'm at. So yeah, I love that. There's a there's a award-winning novelist uh, named Reynolds Price, and he at one point wrote this. He said, "A need to tell and hear stories is essential to the species Homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. Second in necessity, apparently after nourishment, and before love and shelter. Millions survive without love or home." almost none in silence. Mm. The opposite of silence leads quickly to narrative, and the sound of story is the dominant sound of our lives, wow. from the small accounts of our day's events to the vast, incommunicable constructs of psychopaths. Mm. Wow. <laughs> that is a great quote. Yeah, it. yeah, that's it's it's in a piece of mine called Broken Wholeness, which is my story. And, yes. Uh, one thing that probably is worth mentioning for your listeners is that I I've written these books in such a way that a great deal of their depth is actually found in the end notes. Because mm. what I want people to be able to do, I, I I've tried to write particularly the first volume simply enough that even someone who is very young could follow the chapters. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of parenthetical scriptural citation in those chapters, but I mention in advice to my readers at the end of the book that they shouldn't read those scriptures the first time through. They should just read the chapters. Mm -hmm. Maybe the next time they read through the chapters again, they read the scriptures to see if, in fact, I'm following what scripture actually says. On a third or so reading, you read the end notes where, in fact, you get this much richer picture of what is going on in scripture with regard to all of these issues. One of the end notes deals with the fact that doubt and struggle is inherent to the life of faith. Mm -hmm. It is not possible to live a faithful life without doubt and struggle. Mm -hmm. And of course, our Lord himself made that clear yes. with his cry on the cross. Mm -hmm. You know what I have found so encouraging in terms of Christ's personal experiences is mm -hmm. he's praying, is there any way that I can yes. please not do what I know yeah. that you've assigned to my life yeah. because that yes. is a feeling. Oh my word. That is a feeling I felt so many times. Like I can see where we're headed. I know what's yeah. going to be called of me and I am begging yeah. you to not make me do it. And then of yes, course, you always miss, but 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, very good because because we get in John the fact that our Lord is perfectly clear that what he has come into the world to do is to die and be resurrected. Mm -hmm. And so he knows that is his mission. And yet in his humanity, the idea of of having to uh, face his father, Mm -hmm. turning his back on him and pouring his wrath onto him is so awful that he must beg his father, is there any way that that this cup can pass for me? I can avoid drinking this cup. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Well, Mark, it has been delightful to have you on our podcast and to gain from all of your insight and wisdom and get a deeper look into your book. Anything else that you wanted to share before we wrap things up tonight? And thank you again so much for being here. Well, this has actually been um, one of the best podcasts I've done. I've done quite a few. You two are very well prepared. And it seems to me that, in fact, you've already thought deeply about many of these things. I think I would mention one thing, Kim. And Mm -hmm. that is that when we were at Calvin and I was having a desperately hard time finishing my dissertation, Mm -hmm. your husband, Nate, um, Mm -hmm. was the person who stood in the gap for me and who regularly was the person that gave me short of the reading of scripture, the comfort to go on. God Mm -hmm. has made us for communion. Mm-hmm. Communion is what human beings need more than what persons need more than anything else. And not just communion with God, but communion with other human beings. Mm-hmm. And um, Nate was uh, the person who most did that for me when we were at Calvin. Wow. Well, that is tremendously special to hear. And I know that the feelings are totally mutual. Thank you so much, Mark, for sharing that. And thank you for being on the podcast. Remember his book, When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture by Crossway Books. Look for the next three coming out soon, but this one is out. It's available on Amazon. And also you said there's a there's a new podcast coming out that you're going to be on. Right. And we, we, don't, we, we think we're going to make the title When the Stars Disappear. We're not sure where we're going to try try to air it, but we're hoping that it will come out in September. One place where people could uh, find out about the podcast is at the uh, Christian Scholars Fund website. Wonderful. We'll mention there where it's going to be available. Okay. And Anna, we can put those links in, right? Yes. Excellent. Thank you again so much, Mark. Thank you. I'm Kim and I'm the mom signing off. And I'm Anna. I'm the daughter. And thank you guys so much for being here. And we will see you next week or next month, depending on (laughs) when we get our act together and do another episode thank you guys for joining us today stay tuned for more podcasts from anna and kim on the new series not ideal but we're going with it also check out their new website at www.notideal.net